Hey y'all, my name is John Davenport. For those of y'all that don't know me, for those of y'all that do know me, you know me to be a pretty content guy. Rarely, if ever, complaining, but with my family here today, they know that that wasn't always the case. And I want to preface this story by saying that my parents are both very loving, kind, grace, gracious people and patient people, but one of the things that they don't tolerate is whining. So much to the point that whenever I called my family to ask them for a story for this lesson, they were all a little too quick to remember times that my whining had gotten me in trouble. And, oh man, one doozy of a story was when I was a wee lad and we were grocery shopping. Now, I come from a big family, both of number and stature, uh, so grocery shopping is a family event. So because of all the stuff that we get and so that you can have a choice in the snacks that we get, and maybe if you're sneaky enough, maybe even sneak something into the cart for yourself to be discovered at the checkout line when it's too late. Uh, but for one reason or another, I started whining and pitching a fit and really making a bad scene. And my mom politely asked me to stop. And she warned me that if I didn't, she would pick me up, take me out to the car, and we would have a come to Jesus meeting, like she always calls them. Well, obviously I didn't stop or else I wouldn't be telling you guys the story. So sure enough, she picked me up, walked me out to the car, and we had our meeting. But the thing is, is that we weren't even done grocery shopping. So I had to go back inside for what felt like hours after I had literally seen God that day. <laughs> and it was brutal. I actually have a meme that I think covers this perfectly. So in case you guys don't get it, I'm the bird that looks like death, and my mom is the bird that looks perfectly calm, cool, and collected. But after reminiscing over this wonderful memory that I'm pretty sure I had forcibly forgotten until then, uh, my mom told me why she dislikes whining so much. She said that it shows a lack of gratitude, that it says that everything that the provider has been doing is not enough, and that you, in fact, think that you deserve better. It takes the intention off of the provider and onto your own selfishness. I talk about this today because today we're going to be reading about the Israelites' selfishness. So I'm going to be reading out of Exodus 16 and 17. So if y'all would turn there, I'll give y'all the context. So the Spark Notes version of what's happened so far is that God called and enabled Moses, who is an Israelite and an ex-Egyptian prince, to free the Israelites from their slavery to Egypt. However, the Pharaoh at the time said no, so some plagues happened. And then something that we call the Passover happened. And the Passover is when the Spirit of the Lord went throughout Egypt and killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But the Israelites were saved by the blood of a lamb. Now, foreshadowing aside, the Pharaoh finally let the Israelites free, but as they were leaving, he chased after them to kill them. So in order to escape, God split the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk through on dry land. 
And as the Pharaoh was chasing after them, God crashed the sea on top of them to save the Israelites and finally free them from the Egyptians. Now I know that was a lot, so if you want a more exciting and dramatized version of that, feel free to watch The Prince of Egypt. (laughs) It's a DreamWorks movie about the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus. But now we catch up with the Israelites in the wilderness of Sin on the 15th day of the second month after this whole movie happened. So I'm going to be starting in verses one or in verse one uh, of chapter 16. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had left the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. So here we see the Israelites asking the question of Moses and Aaron and of God, why did you even bring us out of Egypt just to kill us in the wilderness? And in hindsight, we know that God took the Israelites out of Egypt to free them from slavery, obviously, but to draw them closer to him as he led them to the promised land. But here we see that the Israelites were obviously blind to that. And after all the plagues, after splitting the sea, here they are complaining to God and blaming him for their current situation. So this raises the question for us, how can we be blinded to what God is doing in our lives? How can we be blinded to what God is doing in our lives? Now this list is unexhaustive. It can go on forever, but I have here three things I think are pretty prevalent. The first is uncertainty. Now once again, we can read the book of Exodus, in hindsight of everything that God has done in and for the Israelites. And it seems, we can read it seeming that the Israelites are so crazy for complaining and blaming God for their current situation, but in all reality, everything that the Israelites are complaining about is completely reasonable. We have to remember that this is thousands of families that haven't eaten or drank anything in days. They went from knowing what everything would happen in Egypt, which was suffering, to being in the wilderness, not knowing where they're going or what's going to happen. And with that in mind, I think it's pretty easy to say that I would act the exact same way that the Israelites are. I think we all would, because we've all been in similar situations. Like, Uh, You're waiting to hear back from a job that you've applied for, or you're waiting to hear back on something in your current job, or even you're about to graduate in May, and you have no idea what the future has in hold for you. Now, mindful, those have nothing compared to what the Israelites are going through, but it helps us sympathize with them and realize that we act the same way every day. And the second is... uh, complacency. 
And my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, has this to say in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are too easily pleased. What Lewis is saying here is that we are too easily pleased with the negative influences that we surround ourselves with and too easily comfortable in our own sin habits that we're drawn away from and distracted by or distracted from the future glory that is provided to us and given to us freely through Jesus. And the third thing that I have here is hardship. I actually came to faith through hardship. Um, You see, I grew up in the church, but my faith was not my own. I was a Christian, Christian because my parents are Christian. I went to church because my parents took me to church. But I had made idols out of my sport and out of my girlfriend, and it took God breaking those idols through a really bad breakup and literally breaking my back to humble me to the point that I looked past my pride and saw that God was the only way that I could live a meaningful and impactful life. And we see these three things in the Israelites. Uncertainty of where they're going and what's going to happen. Complacency in their slavery in Egypt, because they say it here in verse 3, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, where we sat in where we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. And then obviously hardship in their slavery, of course, and in their current travels. So here they are complaining and blaming God for their situation when all he's done for them is provide for them and help them and free them. Why? Because they're hungry? And after a whole movie has happened, Now, I get hangry too. Um, Most of the time, I'm pretty quiet when I'm hangry, but sometimes, especially when my blood sugar is really low, I get really irritable. One time in particular, I was helping my girlfriend, Marissa, move from her apartment in Brooklyn, where her lease was ending, down to Atlanta, where her family lives. And for those of y'all that have moved, you know that the moving process is already stressful and exhausting. And add on to the fact that it was snowing outside and a whole lot of her stuff wasn't fitting into the car that I brought makes it infinitely times worse. And Marissa was just as tired and hungry as I was. And it was her stuff that wasn't fitting into the car, but I was the one with the attitude. And Marissa called me out about it and she even gave me some food and a candy bar. And after 30 minutes of pouting and eating on the floor... I came to my senses, I apologized, we talked it out, and we went back to the grudging moving. Uh, (laughs) So here the Israelites are complaining after days of not eating and drinking. So how insane, how pathetic am I for acting the way that I did after only a couple of hours? So how does God reply? Surely he just smites them, poofs them away, starts over. (laughs) No, we see in verses 4 and 12 that God replies by saying, I will rain bread 
from heaven and provide drinkable dew in quails every day so that the Israelites are satisfied. And in order to put how insane this is into perspective, have any of y'all seen Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah, be proud. <laughs> so picture whole loaves of bread falling from the sky daily. You literally cannot go outside until it's done raining bread for the day so you don't get smacked upside the head with like a baguette. <laughs> grace upon grace. When we deserve nothing but wrath for our sin and our continued spitting in the face of God, God replies with grace. And we see this continued grace as we catch up with the Israelites at the well at Rephidim in chapter 17, starting in verse 1. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses said to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted. There was no water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you ever bring us out of Egypt just to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried to the Lord, Why or what should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me. And the Lord answered, Go ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff with which you struck the Nile in your hand and go. And I am going to stand in front of you at the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord not with us. So again, we see the Israelites complaining. And understandably, a little bit annoyed, Moses snaps at them before going to God. And again, God replies with abundant and overflowing grace. Pun intended. But after all the plagues, after the splitting of the sea, after the braining bread, after the drinkable dew, after the quail, the Israelites' perspective is still selfish. And Moses could have quit. He could have given up and complained and joined the Israelites, or he could have even fought against the Israelites. But instead, he goes to God. He prays, knowing that God is with them, knowing that God is providing for them. So we see here that complaining doesn't change your position, but prayer can change your perspective. Once again, we can sympathize with the Israelites because we all act the same way in situations that are far less than theirs. But we also know that God has proven himself faithful to provide over and over and over again, and that it is out of the Israelites' faithlessness that they are blind to it and are now attacking God's servant. And instead of giving up and quitting and joining the Israelites or even fighting against the Israelites, Moses prays, knowing that God is with them. 
Complaining doesn't change your situation. Prayer might not even change your situation, but it does make you aware of God's presence and his grace within it. Two summers ago, I had the amazing blessing of working at a sports camp. And during the sports camp, the different age cabins would go on two-day expeditions. For the senior cabins, we went whitewater rafting. And that whitewater rafting is awesome. I can't suggest it enough for everyone to put it on their bucket list. But what isn't awesome is the two-hour hike that we had to make to our camp where it magically always rained and we slept on broken pallet boards and the leaders didn't even sleep anyways because we had to babysit the campers who just love to torture us and keep us awake. And then after that, we have a whole hour hike uphill even more to get to the bus to take us back to camp. So after a night of not sleeping, I got up, started the fire, made the breakfast, woke up the guys, they ate, we got ready, and then we hit the hike. And this hike is brutal. Like, literally this incline all the time. And honestly, out of my own laziness, I volunteered to take up the caboose. And in order to distract my guys and honestly distract myself from how brutal this hike is, I told them funny stories from my life. We traded jokes and we traded riddles and we talked about uh, really deep theological things that I've learned. And we were distracted to the point that whenever we got to the end, we were able to finish strong and run. Our situation hadn't changed. That hike is brutal. I don't care how fit you are. But our perspective had changed enough so that whenever we got to the end, we were able to finish strong and run. We don't always need to change our situation. We need to change our perspectives about how big and bad something is to how big God is. And we can do so by taking time daily to think about and thank God for ways that he's blessed us. Big or small blessing, you'll see over time that slowly this once big and bad thing becomes very small in God's presence and in the midst of everything that he's done for you. One of my things is my thought life. I strive daily to take captive all impure, spiteful, and even self-deprecative thoughts. And for the longest time, it was brutal. It was really rough. Uh, but one of my professors who was talking about this very thing had this to say, and it really helped me. He said, the more that we focus on our sin and how impossible it may seem to overcome, the more we forget that Jesus has already overcome our sin. The bigger we make of our sin, the smaller we make of God. We need to turn away from our failure in sin and turn towards our life in victory. So this begs the question for us, where do I need to change my perspective? Am I focused on comfort? Am I not willing to do the hard things in life? Am I focused on gratification? And am I constantly working for the love and attention of others? Or am I focused on achievement? And am I constantly walking on top of others so that I get the glory? 
Or am I focused on escape? And am I constantly running to my vices instead of facing reality? This is when I'm convicted of the meaning of fasting. Fasting is the intentional removal of something important or something that distracts you in order to get more of God and grow closer to him. God took the Israelites into the wilderness so that they could grow closer to him and build up the dependence on him so that whenever they got into the promised land, he's all that they need. But we see instead of praising him like they should have, they cursed him. Once again, we all would. So for us, fasting is that intentional removal of those things in order to grow closer to God and get more of him and recenter ourselves on him. So I encourage you that if you are convicted of any of the things I mentioned or even something that God laid on your heart, join me this week in fasting and seeking after God and recentering ourselves on him. It doesn't have to be big because it's the intention behind it that God recognizes, he values, and he honors, and he will use. So before we get into this next section of scripture, I really want to set the stage for you guys. And we're going to be in uh, 17 verses 8 through 16. So the possession of wells was something that was often fought over in ancient times. So we'll see that the news of a river sprouting out of a rocket, Rephidim, got the attention of the Amalekites. So, of course, in order for the Amalekites to get this new well, they have to kill the Israelites. So let's read about it in verses 8 through 16. Or 8 through uh, 13, forgive me. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. And Moses said to Joshua, Select some, select some men and go and fight for us against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. But whenever Moses put his hands down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on each side, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. So we see here in the aftermath of this battle that because God had already promised that the Israelites would make it to Mount Sinai to worship him, God already had victory over the Amalekites. But he wanted the Israelites to participate in and witness to his victory. They did so through community. Moses had the help of Aaron and Hur on each side in support of Joshua and the Israelites. And we see the same thing in our church, in our community groups. Each one of us building each other up, encouraging each other, challenging each other, and holding each other accountable, participating with, and bearing witness to God's victory in our lives. So we see that it is through victory that we participate with and witness to God's victory. From all of this that we've read in chapter 16 and 17, we know that God is faithful even when we are faithless. 
God is faithful even when we are faithless. On staff here, we have to support raise our salaries. Going into it, I thought it would be pretty easy. My parents know a lot of people, and we know a lot of people in ministry. So I thought that people would be willing to give since they know me, and they know my family, and they know our hearts. But I was very, very wrong. Support raising is really hard, and I doubted, I was faithless and doubted that God would provide for me. So when I got hard, I quit. And no matter how spiteful I was, no matter how much I complained, God didn't quit on me. He continued to send people my way that would give without me even asking. Through that and through talking to Kevin, who's our worship leader on staff here, and my roommate, I was convicted to begin again. God had provided me the opportunity to depend on him and grow closer to him. But it was out of my faithlessness that I quit and didn't. And we see the same thing, God doing the same thing with the Israelites. He provided opportunity after opportunity for the Israelites to depend on him and grow closer to him so that he could prove himself faithful to provide and prove that he was all that they needed when they got to the promised land. But out of their faithlessness, they doubted, they complained, they even blamed him for their situation. And we see that we do the same thing ourselves daily. Because what we see as wilderness and hardship, God sees as opportunity. What we see as waiting seasons, God sees as opportunity. Even what we see as temptation, God sees as opportunity. But it was the faithlessness and the complaining of the Israelites that was so infamous that even Paul wrote about it in his exhortation to the Philippian believers and his letter to them. And we're going to be reading that in Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. There he is calling out the Israelites. So that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Oh, in the world. What does it mean to shine like stars? This isn't anything to admire from afar as if Christianity is so far out of everyone else's reach. No, it's something that draws people in and points them to God. Like ancient sailors would map out the night sky and use the stars as their directions to get to their destination. Or even Peter Pan, second star to the right, straight on till morning, God is calling us to live lives that draw people to him and point others to him. So how do we do that? It says in the beginning of verse, uh, verse 16, we do so by holding firm, holding fast to his word. If we spend time in God's word and we get to know what pleases and displeases him, and we know and hold fast those promises and truths that are within it, it helps us draw others to him and point others to him. I think 
a truth that we all really need to hold on to, especially right now, is in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You see, it's not up to us. God already has the victory. Jesus came, lived the perfect life that none of us can, died the death that we deserve, took on our sin, and gave us his righteousness in return so that we can live with nothing to prove and no one to impress. And all that we have to do is take off the blinders of selfishness and participate with and witness his victory and community. Because faith is releasing our situations and holding fast to Jesus. We need to release our situations and hold fast to Jesus. Situations like life after the election, you may be happy with who won, you may be mad with who won, you may even be scared, but we need to release that and hold fast to King Jesus, who we know is still on the throne and is with us and for us and will provide for us no matter what. Or situations like your job. You may not be happy with where you are in your job. You may not even have a job. But we need to release that and hold fast to Jesus, who we know is with you and for you and will provide for you because he's proven it time and time again. Or, relation, or uh, situations like your relationship. Maybe in a place where you really want to get married, but you can't yet. We need to release that and hold fast to God's perfect timing and to the identity of child and heir of God that is given to us by Jesus. Because we can't make less of God by making more of our situations. Our situations are nothing compared to the faithfulness of God because faith is releasing our situation and holding fast to Jesus. With that being said, let's go before Jesus in prayer.